This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. I am Stephen Long. Well, before we get started, I have an announcement to make. If you want to support my work financially, my Patreon is now finally live. For $5 a month, you get a second podcast called The House of Heretics, in which Justin and I have unedited conversations about life, faith, doubt, theology, and much more. It's kind of like a far more unedited and raw version of Sacred Tension. You can find my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and I would be so grateful if you would consider giving. Each Sacred Tension episode requires about 5 to 10 hours of work a week in addition to my full-time job and teaching. So any amount of support you can give is enormously appreciated. I want to keep growing this show, and I need to upgrade to better equipment soon, but I can't do that without your help. And if you're unable to give, don't worry. More than anything, the best way to support this show is to listen to it, enjoy it, and share it with people you love. And in the meantime... I will keep releasing one episode a week, every week, forever. Today, I'm talking to Jay Baker, pastor of Revolution Church, an LGBT ally, and son of the notorious televangelists Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. We discuss what it was like growing up in the Baker family, why he came out in support of LGBT people, his agnostic Christianity, and his struggles with alcoholism and depression, and much more. His brutal honesty about depression and alcoholism is inspiring, and his commitment to loving everyone, even his far-right conspiracy theorist father, is honestly really convicting. I have a tendency to be very cynical of people who I deem my ideological enemies. I tend to express a lot of contempt, and Jay, in talking about his relationship with his father really challenged me on that, and I walked away feeling humbled and challenged in a good way. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Jay Baker. All right, well, I'm here with Jay Baker. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. I really, really relate with your story. Like you, I am the son of two pastors, and you are kind of an outsider. You're kind of a renegade. You've kind of put yourself in opposition to a lot of the stuff (laughs) that your parents represent. Your parents, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Yep. Tammy Faye, unfortunately, is no longer with us, and she was kind of a gay icon and kind of a drag icon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And your father is still alive, Jim Baker, kind of a Christian theocrat conspiracy theorist, and and I'm sure we'll get around to talking about that at some point. But over the years that I've been aware of you, which has been about... 10 or 15 years, I've really, really related to your story where you're kind of this renegade outsider within Christianity, within American evangelicalism. You have been a huge proponent for LGBT people. You call yourself an agnostic Christian. You started out as the son of two megachurch televangelists who are, and your father, I hope you don't mind me saying, is very corrupt. 
and very conservative. How do you go from that? How do you go from being raised in that setting to where you are now? Can you talk about that transformation some? Well, my parents taught me a lot about loving people. And it's it's strange because people don't see that. But my parents were always taught me that the trump card was love. Yeah. And that we were always called to love people above all else. My dad wasn't really that conservative until you know the past probably five or ten years. He really went super conservative. Really? Okay. Yeah. In his in, in in the more in his glory years, I guess you know he was more open and. Uh, That's interesting. People, yeah. He, That's really he interesting. Got more conservative as he's gotten older, which is really strange. Well, and and you know the gay community does kind of owe your mom. A debt where she was one of the first people to have an HIV positive person on her show on on television. Yeah, and and yeah. so they really did kind of embody that love and acceptance. Yeah, so there was a lot of that, and so I just took that to heart. And so when I got started in ministry, I always felt like I wanted to reach out to people who weren't being reached out to, and hanging out with people who weren't being hung out with. And that's just where I was originally, you know, started. So we started, me and some friends started this church called Revolution, and it was pretty evangelical. But yeah, so, you know, we started this church um, to punk rock kids. It was, you know, we were evangelical kids just trying to do something different. And really what happened over time was the message changed for me and the idea of grace and inclusion were ideas that just kind of kept coming back to me because I had felt my own guilt. I felt my own judgment. I'd felt like God didn't approve of me and that I couldn't live up to God's standards or I couldn't live up to, you know, so much of what the I saw in church was seemed like impossible standards. Mm. And so I was pretty much done. I'd left the ministry after revolution started. I left for about a year. When was this? This was in 94, 95. Okay. And so I left for about a year and moved to Atlanta in with a friend of mine who was a youth pastor. But he was all about grace and love and mercy and that type of thing. And that was really blew me away. But I also thought that it was, you know, he was just trying to justify his own sin. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. Uh, so I said, prove it to me, you know, prove me what you're talking about is true. And we started going through the scriptures together and things like that. And I was blown away by the inclusion that I could find there and the grace that I could find there. Yeah. And so that's where kind of that, I guess, what people call a rebel, rebel spirit or whatever, you know, kind of started out as me coming back in saying, wait a second, we've missed the boat here. Yeah. You know, there's so much grace and there's so much love. Without getting too much into theology and scripture here, because that's a whole that's a conversation that can last for days. But within the scripture, what did you see? What did you find that allowed you to pivot from a position of alienation to a posture of hospitality? Well, almost the whole book of Galatians. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, like it was big for me. Scriptures like Ephesians 2.8.9, you're saved by grace, not by works, so no man may boast. You know, seeing how much Jesus rebuked religious teachers of his time, mm. you know, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do, have come to call sinners, not those who think they're good enough. You know, yeah, and so you got to get this idea of like, oh, and he was talking to religious teachers when he was saying stuff like that. So, yeah, th those things like that were just really eye opening to me. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the the incredible thing about Galatians, what strikes me so much about that book is how alien it feels in its context. You know, it's like that does not feel like the product of first century <laughs> Judaism. You know what I mean? You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's it's so revolutionary where Paul is saying things like there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, all are one in Christ, Jew or Gentile, all are one in Christ. I don't think we appreciate, you know, for all the shit that Paul gets. Yeah. Rightfully, <laughs> I think. Yeah. That that book is truly like ahead of his time. Yeah, I mean it's probably the earliest New Testament writing. Mm-hmm. So that's another pretty amazing thing about it is that it probably predates a lot of. I mean, it definitely predates the predates the Gospels, but yeah, it could be the earliest book of the New Testament. So yeah, it's it's really amazing, and and the fact that it's also a letter that it's a, a rebuke letter to a group of people because they're getting back into legalism and back into the law. Right. Right. So I relate to what you're saying here because, and I and I think a lot of people will. I think my audience, generally speaking, are in this in-between place between their Christian upbringing and the world we now live in and trying to reconcile an ancient faith to modern science, to equality and justice and the way we understand that in a modern world. And so a lot of us are scarred from our Christian backgrounds, but what I hear you saying is that you took the good from your background. You took the best things that your parents taught you, and you've kind of run with that. And uh, I hear a lot of people doing that, basically saying, well, you know, my, my evangelical upbringing, it really destroyed me. But here are the good things they taught me. They taught me to, even if it's something as simple as they taught me to read and analyze scripture. Yeah. That's a good thing. And you can take that and run with it and go in a completely opposite direction with it. Or, you know, they taught me to to think critically, or they taught me to question a lot of stuff, or they taught me to whatever it, you know, my dad always taught me he was a doctorate in, in theology and very, very, very intelligent man, also very, very conservative, but he always taught me question and test everything. That's awesome. And then I did. <laughs> and it yeah. took me way far away from where from my beginnings. And so I think that a lot of us are in this place of having to find that good and running with it and and allowing that to define our evangelical upbringing as as kind of a process of healing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what I did and then it of course grew and and evolved into where I'm at now. Yeah. Do you ever still talk to your dad? Yeah, I mean, we talk every now and then. Mostly, though, it's uh, sending him pictures of his grandkids. Okay. We don't agree on a whole lot. Yes, yes. But you can agree on on loving grandkids. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Since my mom's not around, you know, it's one of those things where you're just kind of like, well, the Bible talks a lot about loving people that were our enemies and people that we don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I try to live that, you know, I try to, I think we miss that on the, I think the right misses that. And I think the left misses that. Mm, How so? We want to make everybody into a movie bad guy. Yeah. Into a caricature. Yeah. And, you know, it's like we, anybody who thinks Trump is good must be evil, you know, and they're human beings 
who are making decisions from their past experiences. And so yeah. my job is, you know, I don't have to agree with them, but if I follow the scriptures, I do have to love them. Mm. Learning how to do that. Yeah, that that's interesting because I I would love to hear you unpack that a bit more. How do you think the left and the right are are guilty of this? Well, we just ostracize our enemies. You know, I mean, we just we we make caricatures out of our enemies and lump them all together. And it, it's almost like your dad. I I've often seen your father as like the pinnacle caricature of the Trump supporter. You know, all over yeah. all over the internet, I I really see your family as like being the caricature right wing family, and you, so you're in the position of of humanizing someone very close to you, your father, who is who is kind of the poster boy right now in a lot of corners of the internet for being a, a caricatured Trump supporter. Yeah, I mean, it would be really easy to write my dad off and not talk to him and all that kind of stuff. But I'm trying to encourage people to love one another, practice things like nonviolence towards one another. I mean, Martin Luther King said we were, you know, that our enemies aren't enemies, that the that that they're victims of misinformation. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so trying to see people as victims of misinformation and trying to see the message as the enemy, not them as the enemy, is a real challenge. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I got, I had somebody recently write me a Facebook message telling me like, oh, I needed to straighten my dad out. You know, he's full of shit and I'm full of shit. If I don't straighten him out, you know, and I wanted to be like, well, here's the phone number for my psychiatrist who tells me that it's none of your damn business how, what goes on with my parents. And two, like who can change their parents? Yeah, exactly. Or who can change their kids? Like right. vice versa. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate what you're saying here. Because I have gotten into a lot of trouble on Twitter and, and various social media circles and with a lot of my audience, because I refuse to disassociate from certain people who I deeply disagree with. Yeah. And not only people I I disagree with people I think who have ideas that are tangibly dangerous and I would even go so far as to say sinful right but I I refuse to to distance myself from them in part because I was once one of them yeah. you know I was once there I was once a super conservative self-loathing gay guy pretending to be straight whose ideas were really really toxic and if it wasn't for people who were incredibly patient with me, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I am today. Me too. I mean, yeah. not just in my conservative stuff, but in my own like alcoholism and things like that. It hadn't been people for loving me and being patient with me through some of that. Yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today. Absolutely. Period. Yeah, exactly. And and also there's just this idea that like what one thing that drives me to keep getting to know people and connect with people is that understanding why other people believe what they believe will never ever work against me. Right. You know, that will never ever work against me in my goal to create a more just and equal and compassionate society. You know, understanding why a Trump supporter 
believes what they believe, that's important. <laughs> like I need yeah. to, I need to know that. I need to be able to figure that out so that that will aid me in the process of creating a more just society. Yeah, I mean, you're a better person for it, and that's it's. But it's tough. It's a, it's, it's very the, hard. It's the narrow road that's talked about. Yes, it is. You know, yeah, and you know, there are people in my life who will tell me I don't have time, I don't have energy, I don't have the strength, and I hate them. And right. and I'm like, that's fine. You do you. You know, if you're not in a place where you can connect with people who disagree with you on fundamental issues, that's fine. I was in that place for a really long time. At the same time, it is through relationship that transformation happens. And I, you know, I, I firmly believe that a better world is predicated on conversion. Yeah. You know, a conversion of heart, Saul becoming Paul. And if we are not the catalyst for that, then nothing will be. Yeah, I mean, love is the only power capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Exactly. So I've heard you describe yourself as an agnostic Christian. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that some? Well, I mean, there's not much to it, but it's just <laughs> the, you know, I mean, it's the idea that I don't know. I mean, ultimately, it boils down to at the end of the day, I can't give you a hundred percent answer that you know God is God and Jesus is the Son of God. You know, I live. Hopefully, I, I, I try to live by that, by faith, but there's times where I doubt it myself, you know, and uh, struggle with it. I've just always been more comfortable with that idea of agnostic Christian as saying, you know, I believe there's something there. I just, I don't always know what it is. Yeah, I really respect that. What, what does that doubt look like? You know, like I tell people, it depends on what day you catch me on, you know, yeah. there will be some days when I'm like a straight up Richard Dawkins atheist, you know, <laughs> and then there will be other days where inexplicably kind of against my better judgment, I believe. And so what does that, what do those doubts look like for you? Like, what are the things that give you pause? What are the things that keep you up at night? in terms of doubt? Sometimes some of the verses in the Bible, you know, just some of the more outlandish verses in the Bible or, you know, like women don't speak in church or mm, yeah. slaves obey your masters or some of that stuff. You just go, oh, this is painful. Yes, you know? it is. And, you know, how do I, how do I reconcile this? You know, and I know it's not infallible, but when you were raised to believe that it was infallible, you know, and then you look at stuff like that, you still have those little memories and thoughts and yes you know brainwashed things in your head you know and you go like how can i believe in this it's yeah those those tapes are still playing yeah yeah so you're an agnostic christian the way i like to describe my experience of faith is that i see is that i hope for i, I hope that these myths are true yeah. Despite my occasional misgivings about what if they are true, you know, I think the, the 
the reality or I think the possibility of a personal loving God does actually raise some problems about yeah. the goodness of that God because then suddenly we have to contend with natural disasters and genocides and yeah. horrific things in a way that makes me very uncomfortable. But in spite of that, I still hope for a loving God, but I cannot go beyond what I know to be true, which is the magisterium of science. Yeah. The way I describe my Christianity is that it is a guiding myth. It is an inner guiding myth. And I'm wondering if you relate to that. No, I do. I mean, a lot of, I mean, golly, I'm, I'm in a class right now in an introduction to theology class, second time I've taken it, where, you know, a lot of these theologians see it as important to follow the myth as a guiding myth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so it's that's nothing new. I mean, it might be sound scandalous to an evangelical or scandalous to certain Christians, but it's like if you only knew that a lot of your own you know, theologians and, and people like that have always kind of had these ideas and these thoughts that even if it is, if it isn't a myth, even the myth is important. Exactly. Yeah, this isn't a new idea. No. You know, I've been I've been doing a lot of interviews lately uh, with a group called the Satanic Temple, and they are a really, really cool group in that. So they're a bunch of Satanists. They're a bunch of atheist yeah. Satanists, but they they love the the symbol of Satan as kind of the anti-hero rising up against oppression. And, and, you know, regardless of whether or not people like that image of Satan, <laughs> they're doing something really, really cool, which is they're saying we are a religion and we love these symbols and we're going to remain agnostic about the supernatural and we are not invalid as a religion in any way. I love what they're doing, and they're creating kind of this community circling around that idea of you can still be a valid religion while embracing the fact that this is a guiding myth. And so they've been really helpful for me in understanding my own kind of non-theistic, agnostic Christianity in, in embracing that. Well, you know, there was a lot of that with Christianity in the, you know, in the 60s with the Death of God movement. Oh, I don't know about that. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, so that was um, Altizer and, oh gosh, I can't remember the other guy's name off the top of my head. It was Christian atheism. Yeah. You know, so God was dead or God was not, I mean, one, Altizer actually believed that God died on the cross. Literally. So, yeah. so the God of the universe... Yes. Died on, literally died on the cross, yeah, and now yeah. there is no God. Okay. Now there is no God. Okay. Yeah, there was a famous Time Magazine article that said, is God dead? I don't know a ton about it, but I know that, you know, these are people who continued on with Christian symbolism and Christianity, um, even though they believed that God was dead or that it was a form of atheism, but they right. still followed Christianity. So you have done a lot of work in advocating for LGBT people. And actually, one of my first moments of you showing up on my radar was quite a few years ago when you were preaching at a uh, black church and you were challenging them and really, really pushing them on LGBT rights. And it was a really powerful video, and I will link that video yes. 
in the description. And that was kind of when you first showed up on my radar. So we, we've talked about kind of equality and love in general terms, but why LGBT people? What, what drove you to be passionate about that particular subject and to advocate specifically for LGBT people? I guess friends. I had a lot of, you know, I mean, in high school, one of my best friends was gay. So it was like people I loved and cared about. Yeah. You know? And at the time, I was more literal with the scripture when I was studying the scriptures. And I realized, you know, to me that I felt like it wasn't there. I felt like what, what Paul was saying and things like that were forms of worshiping to other gods and Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because it was inhospitable to people. You know, now I could care less, you know, what the Bible says as far as <laughs> that, you know, I'm yeah, me too. quality and love wins and, and love is, is, is the trump card. But at the time it was strangely very biblical to me that, you know, I was doing something. I was, you know, people were being excluded on these bases of these verses that were being misinterpreted. Hmm. And, uh, an idea of sexuality that didn't even exist at the time when the Bible was written. Right. So, yeah. So it was uh, that and just loving people, caring about people, and it was the right thing to do. Yes, it was. You know, it just, it was like, you know. Yeah. And it was tough because I had a lot of, you know, I knew a lot of people in the ex-gay movement and, you know, I'd have a lot of people come. I had remember I used to have a person come to my services and be like, well, I was, you know, gay and I'm not gay anymore. What do you say to me? And I was like, you know, I don't know what to say to you. And, you know, I'm not here to judge you or tell you what you can be or can't be. Of course, later that person came out to me and said, I am gay. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've talked on this show before about how so I was an ex I, I was in the ex gay movement. Okay, as a teenager. And later after coming out, one of the international leaders of the ex gay movement would hit on me on Facebook. In, in private messages, uh -oh. you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and how the whole thing just falls apart. It really does. And it's, it's, it's poisonous. It's the fruit of the ex-gay movement is, you know, homelessness and suicide and excommunication from parents and things like that. So to me, I can't find anything Christian about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for listeners who don't know, the ex-gay movement is the evangelical answer to homosexuality trying to change people's orientation from gay to straight. Well, so yeah, your work and your advocacy for LGBT people as someone who's gay, speaking as someone who is gay, it had a huge impact on me because, you know, growing up in kind of this small Appalachian town, going to a conservative Christian high school and then going to Youth with a Mission and then going to a cons tiny conservative college, seeing someone like you stand before congregations and just kind of take the heat, <laughs> like <laughs> kind of you standing up alone in front of all these people and being like, this is bullshit we need to treat them better and then taking the heat for that was really really validating for me well thank you that's nice to hear it was tough it was oh i can imagine because i i mean i went through my own excommunication of sorts where people wrote me off and still this day i don't feel like i've ever completely recovered from it you know how so just you know i mean even among some of the social justice christians i'm not still accepted why do you think that is I don't know. I think it was because they feel like this, for a long time, it was like I was flying the ointment. 
because I was saying if you're going to do this social justice work, you have to do it for LGBTQ people as well. Yeah. You know, and they're like uncomfortable with it and kept pushing, pushing. And then it became something that became very accepted. You know, the ELCA, Lutherans and different people like that started becoming inclusive and open and affirming. And uh, then it kind of became yesterday's news for some people. So it was just one of those things where it was like, I, you know, never quite got included into the social justice group. They just kind of adopted it. And I just kind of got left to the side. It was really strange. That is strange. So, but you know, it is what it is. And you live life and and you learn from it. Well, yeah. So you sound kind of like an outsider, even for the outsiders. (laughs) (laughs) Not, not, not wanting to be, you know? Yeah. No, I totally, you know, I totally relate to that. And I, and I'm okay with it. It's yeah. it's hard, but I'm okay with it because, you know, I've just resigned myself to the fact that agreeing with people is – there. there's never going to be a group or a person with whom I agree 100%. And if my yeah. sense of solidarity with someone is based on how many boxes I tick off right. of what I agree with, then – I'm not going to have any friends, <laughs> you know, like even yeah. my best friends, if we talk long and hard enough, we will find areas of deep disagreement. My partner and I have deep areas of disagreement. Yeah, I don't know. I sometimes feel like, and I think this is a product of social media, I sometimes feel like solidarity and identity is often based on how closely aligned you are ideologically with other people. Yeah. And I think that's kind of dangerous because if you dig deep enough, it will fall apart. <laughs> no, it does. It definitely does. And it is dangerous. Yeah. It'll, and it's alienating. It's alienating and it's dangerous. Yeah. Jonathan Haidt, who's a, a social psychologist I really love, he, he calls this purifying when communities start to purify and they start excluding. And people on the left and the right do this. And just as a caveat, I, I don't think that the left is as great a threat to world <laughs> to the world as the right. right is at all. And so I'm not saying that the left and right are comparable, but the left does have some issues and the left does do this, as does the right, where they purify their communities, kicking out, excluding anyone who has even the slightest disagreement. I think that that's really dangerous in part because it shuts down the sort of contact that conversion is predicated on. But also, when you dig beneath it, when you actually start to talk to people, you realize that these are individuals with radically different views of the world and that we need each other. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Desperately need each other. We desperately need each other. And that's the only way that we'll ever come to some understanding of truth is if we're kind of all working together and piecing together this puzzle from our different perspectives. Yeah, I've just, I've seen it on both sides so much. You know, I first saw it when my parents had their scandal in the 80s. Yeah. And watched the church completely reject them Mm. and being a side product of that, you know, and then watch liberals do that with each other, you know, and repeat the same mistakes. And you just want to be like, don't do this, you know, don't go down this road, you know, where we, you know, we're always looking for an enemy, you know, and then eventually we become the enemy with each other. Exactly. Yeah. No, as someone who is like the quintessential commie queer that your parents warned you about, (laughs) I, I see this 
in left circles. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, if there's any time in history that we need like a solid left, it's now. And I often just see the left eating their own (laughs) on social media and in public. And it's not good. I've definitely backed off from social media because of that. You know, I used to be really big into Twitter and Mm. Facebook, and I've definitely backed off. Also having kids, I've got a son who's about to be three, and I've got a one-year-old and daughter, Mm. Mm -hmm. and that keeps me busy enough. I can imagine. Yeah, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm being called to just live and to, to build community and justice within my backyard, first and foremost. Yeah. And have the social media thing be secondary to that. So a while ago, you mentioned uh, recovery from alcoholism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk <laughs> about that. I Were you ever in the 12 steps? I'm I'm a 12 stepper. I was never in, in AA, but I was in another program, CODA. But I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about that some. No, I'm in the 12 steps program. Um, that's what changed my life. I don't talk too much about AA because that's they don't like that. Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it definitely has had a profound effect on me. I mean, I've been sober for almost 22 years now. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. It's helped me be part of who I am. It's helped me love people more. It's helped me accept people more. It's, you know, the idea of when you fail or you slip in 12 steps, you know, they welcome you back with a coin. Uh, <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> and, and usually, you know, applause. And um, I learned a lot about what the church could be from AA. Yeah, me too. uh, What an example we could set. Yeah, no, I I know that the 12 steps have been criticized a lot, but they it's they've saved my life. Yeah, it's easy to easy to criticize. But man, it's you go in those rooms. And I know I can go almost anywhere in the world and go into a room and be surrounded by people who are on on the same page. Exactly. Or at least close. Yeah, you know, and, and, and have a safe space. It's pretty amazing. It is incredible. Yeah. And, and for several years, uh, 12-step meetings became my church. I found a level of community and presence there that I never found in church. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Do you still go to meetings? Not as much as I'd like to. Yeah. I'd like to do more, but I, I, I also suffer from depression, and so I've been kind of working on depression and panic and trying to deal with that going to a thing called uh, dbt dialectic behavior therapy oh yeah that's great yeah and so do that and i also go to therapy on top of that and see a psychiatrist so trying to work on those things right now and Mm. and focus on those because i want to be the best parent i can be and the best partner to my wife that i can be and uh and the best pastor i can be you know and depression seems to want to rob me of all those things yeah how do, so i i live with 
quite a bit of depression and anxiety too. What does that look like for you? How does that come up in your life? Hmm. Lots of sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I want to sleep all the time. Um, avoidance of conflict with people I love and care about to the point where it's like I'm not present. Yeah. You know, uh, withdraw, withdraw from people and life and life situations. And, and, and so, yeah, I really have to work on that. You know, the medication helps, but it doesn't, it's not a cure all. There's no, I haven't found a silver bullet to depression or anxiety. Yeah, me too. I'd like to. No, don't get me wrong. If they somebody said, "Here's this works and it does," then I would be like, you know, a pill that worked. I that would, would be, be great. On it in a <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, until they do that, I'm going to you know continue to try different methods and things like meditation and mm. different things that work like that. Has meditation been helping? Um, I do more mindfulness, um, yeah. but about to start working with more meditation is something I'm exploring right now. So we'll see. Yeah. You know, I think it's so good that you talk freely about that. I think we need more leaders in general talking about and humanizing mental health issues. I want to live in a world where I can talk about my mental health issues as easily as I would talk about carpal tunnel or arthritis. Yeah. You no, know, totally. you know, and, and so I, I think the only way to do that is, is to talk openly and freely about it and to be able to stand up in front of your people and be like, Hey, I couldn't get out of bed this morning. Life super sucks right now. Yeah. And I try to do that as most I can with my church. That's um, great. That's wonderful. But it does, but it does sometimes feel like a dirty little secret, you know? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. It's easy just to disappear and fade into obscurity when depression comes along because you know i don't want to write i don't want to prepare my sermons i don't want to you know do what i'm supposed to do how often does it come well i've had a really bad bout with it the past couple years mm, so, mm -hmm. so I, I i i live with it I, I live with it on a pretty regular basis it doesn't move for some people it moves in cycles yeah and for me it's pretty pretty normally it's, there it's it's just part of your landscape yeah you know, and I'm an introvert too, so that doesn't help. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I totally understand. Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the mental health issues came from my time in the ex-gay movement. I'm sure. Oh, man, it fucked me up so much. And, you know, I just turned 30 last two, two or three weeks ago. And, you know, every time I reach a new year, I'm like, yay, I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's amazing. And so turning 30 was like such a big deal for me because there have been times of my life when I never thought that I would make it to 30 because of these mental health struggles that I have. You know, this is the happiest and the most fulfilled and healthiest that I've ever been in my life. And I... That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I occasionally still have moments. I occasionally still have days or weeks when when it comes. But you know, I really I really have to live my life knowing that I am at high risk, you know. Yeah. Apart from the trauma that I experienced growing up, just in general, I'm at high risk, I think. I'm prone to mental illness. And so I really have to live my life being really careful. And uh, knowing that I'm at greater risk for mental health problems than maybe the majority of people out there. Yeah. And maybe you relate to this, but 
I find that that actually that knowledge actually helps me live a more full life. Yeah, I feel like it forces me to. Yeah, it uh, well, you know it it forces you to communicate. It forces you to be mindful of what you eat and what you how much you sleep and and all that stuff. Where did your alcoholism start? Oh gosh, probably started when I was twelve or thirteen years old with just wine coolers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but as my parents were going through all this, I was just looking for a way to feel secure. You this know? being this being their scandal. Yeah, their yeah. big scandal in the eighties. You know, I was just looking for a way to fit in and a way to feel like I belonged and not feel like an outsider. And uh, that seemed to be a superpower for a while. You know, it seemed to be able to self medicate so by drinking. Yeah, and uh, gave me the ability to not be so shy and timid and and. Uh, Unfortunately, that lasted until I was probably 20, 21, mm. you know, cope as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Tying that into our conversation with social media, and, and this is just totally kind of random. So, so you talk about how alcohol was this personal, like, superpower that, that helped you get in touch with your inner extrovert and helped you feel more stable and all that. Do you think that social media is doing that for a lot of people and has kind of a similar effect as alcohol? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It did for me for a while. Yeah, me too. No, I and, and it makes us feel like like superhumans and, and then it inevitably collapses in on itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange. It was really great for a long time and then as soon as my depression started really coming back, I started to retreat. And then, you know, oh, I didn't get as many retweets or I didn't get as many of this. And, you know, and it was like the hit wasn't as good, you know. Literally. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And as someone who who's lived through recovery, I'm I'm sure you probably recognized that as yeah, like a yeah. red flag. Like, What's going on here? You know, and so I just was like, you know, this is probably not the healthiest place for me to be right now. And I was watching people just, you know so easily destroy one another, you know, just so easily be better than thou. And, and I just, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, me too. How are you staying sober these days? I don't really have a desire to drink. That's awesome. Or use, you know, I, I have a desire to be sane. Yes. <laughs> have peace, you know, and to have, be a good father and be a good husband and um, to be mentally stable. So those desires keep me keep me pretty sober. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, we're coming to the end of our time, but I just have to say that I so appreciate the work that you've done over the years and and I think more than that, I appreciate just how honest and real and unpretentious you are. You know, there's a lot of posturing out there in the world, especially from pastors. Growing up as a preacher's kid, I have I've kind of seen how the sausage gets made <laughs> in, yeah, right. in Christianity. And it's not pretty and there's a lot of posturing. And I just get none of that from you in this conversation. And I I think that's so valuable. So that's nice to hear. Thanks. If people want to catch up with you or find you online, where can they find you? <laughs> I mean if they if you want to be found, maybe you don't want to be found <laughs> I, i'm on twitter and i'm on facebook as jay baker okay. um, but instagram is where i really like and that's jay baker too it's just jay baker with two k's yeah so i like instagram a lot i like sharing photos of my family and 
friends and I like doing the Insta stories. And so, I don't know, I find it less threatening. Awesome. All right. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Well, that is our show. Before we sign off here, I just have a small request and a few announcements. If you enjoy this show, if you find yourself looking forward to it every single week, I have a small request to make. Just go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. You don't even have to write anything. Just give me five stars. Be honest, if you hate the show, I mean, you can leave a one star if you want. But this is really important because a lot of guests, when I ask them to come on, they don't even talk to me or listen to the show. They just look at how many stars I have. So if you want me to keep getting more guests, and if you uh, want me to keep uh, expanding this show, a really easy way to do that is to just leave me a review on iTunes. Also, other ways to support the show. You can share it with your friends, you can share it on social media and uh, talk about it with your friends. All of that helps enormously. Also, if you have been listening to the show for any amount of time, you're probably aware of my friend Matt Langston. He's the frontman of the band Eleventy Seven. He comes onto the show frequently to talk about faith and doubt and LGBT issues, and he's one of my regular co-hosts. Well, he has his own show called Eleventy Life, and he spends a lot of time over there talking about the life of a musician. He talks to other producers and musicians who are living the creative life and how they navigate it. If that interests you, definitely check out Eleventy Life. The music is by The Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant, and we will see you next week. <laughs>